you please join me for a word of prayer? Lord, our world is full of love songs, but we thank you for the songs that celebrate your love for us. They give us ways to celebrate our love for you. Your love is amazing. It's surprising. It's a mystery. It astounds us that you, the eternal God, the creator, should reach out to each of us individually like a loving father. It's beyond comprehension that you'd enter our world, suffer alongside us, undergo death on the cross as payment in full for our sins so that we could be forgiven. Who could ever imagine that you'd come to live inside us by your Holy Spirit, sharing that resurrection power with us to give courage and hope for the challenges we face every day? Lord, we long for the people in Sterling and in the surrounding communities to experience the transforming power of your love. And on this President's Day weekend, we ask for a clear and fresh touch of your love for our president and for his cabinet and for each of their families. We pray for Senators Kerry and Brown and for Governor Patrick and their families. May each of them turn to your word for guidance and humbly come to you in prayer for wisdom. We pray for special expressions of your love, your protection, and your empowerment for Pastor Neil in Rwanda and Pastor Ken in South Africa, for the teams in Central Asia and the Dominican and all those who are serving with them. We thank you, Lord, for giving us the Bible as your love letter to us. May its words come alive as we study them together this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. It's really great to be with you this morning. I remember well the excitement of the celebration that we had at Grace Baptist when we sent off Neil and Christina eight years ago in the spring of 2002 with blessing and prayer to start a new work here in Sterling. And it's exciting to see all that God has done in these last eight years and just to share some of the stories with people after the first service this morning. It's a great privilege to be with you today on this Valentine's Day. Now, Valentine's Day only comes, uh, it doesn't come too often on a Sunday. The last time it happened was 11 years ago. And Valentine's Day is special for me because 35 years ago on Valentine's Day, I gave Phyllis her engagement ring. Now, unfortunately, she is not with me as my Valentine this morning. She's on the other side of the country teaching classes for Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon and San Jose. So I had to go online this week to look up an e-card to send her that would be in her mailbox this morning, and uh, it brought a lump to my throat when I read it, and I hope it brings one to hers when she sees it, and hopefully she's three hours behind, I hope that she's read it by now. But whether or not there's a special Valentine in your own life right now, each of us at one time or another has probably experienced the excitement of falling in love or the disappointment and pain of a love that didn't work out so well, and a romance that disappointed us. In the comic strip, Kathy, one of her boyfriends, is struggling to find words to express his affection for her. And with starry eyes, Kathy reports to her mother, Max said I brightened his life like a halogen lamp, and that I was as unique as his personal access code. He said I already meant as much to him as programmable pause and that life with me would be life without me would be like having 256k of ram with no system diskette. <laughs> Kathy sighs terms of high tech endearment but her mother responds call the police. <laughs> Max needs help doesn't he? But many of us need help in putting our love into words and that's where the greeting card industry comes to our rescue. Because no matter who you are, no matter what the object of your affection may be like, some poet has found a way to express his admiration, the the admiration that you feel. For example, I found one card that must have been written by a fisherman. How do I love thee? Let me count the whales. Hope this doesn't come as a shark to you, but I've got you under my fin. 
It seems that I've spent my entire life waiting for salmon like you. Now you octopi all my thoughts. In fact, if it weren't for you, I'd probably end up on squid row. I may be shellfish, but I want you completely to myself. And I love you beyond the shadow of a trout. Or here's another card I found a little bit more sentimental. Love is a worry, love is a pain. Not only that, it drives you insane. Oh, love makes you dopey and daffy, it's true. So pad me a cell, because I'm crazy for you. Now, if you think the authors of these greeting cards are a little eccentric, think about the people who buy them. (laughs) Love does the strangest things to people. Here are some video clips of children commenting on the meaning of love and dating and marriage. Let's look. Well, where does this deep and compelling urge that we call love come from? What's the root of romance? Why are we driven by this attraction to the opposite sex that can turn grown men into putty? The answer lies in Genesis chapter 2. And these verses provide the key that unlock our understanding of the basic relationship between men and women. They contain the account of the first romance and of the first marriage. And whether you are married or have been married or want to get married or know someone who is married or are praying for someone who may someday marry, these verses have something for you. So whether you're excited to celebrate Valentine's Day today with your sweetheart or the very mention of Valentine's Day depresses you because of the memories and the feelings that it stirs up, don't worry, there's something in this passage that gives fresh perspective for you and fresh insight. So let's turn, please, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. It's right at the very beginning of the Bible. Just a couple of pages in. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Why did God create the woman? What was the purpose of the first marriage? Six times during the account of creation given in Genesis 1, we read, God saw that it was good. In the very last verse of Genesis chapter 1, we read, God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. Yet here in chapter 2, we find the first time when God looks at something he has made, and he says, it is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. The word order in the Hebrew sentence makes it a very emphatic statement. Literally, not good it is. Why wasn't it good for the man to be alone? We read in Genesis chapter 1 that God made people in his image. That means that there are points of resemblance and correspondence between ourselves and God. 
Not in a physical sense, because God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. He's not confined to a body. But we resemble God in our ability to think abstractly, to reason, to invent, to discern moral values, to appreciate beauty. And because we are made in God's image, love and communication are at the very foundation of our humanness. For all eternity, God has been complete within himself, even in the area of interpersonal relationships and interpersonal communication, because even though he is one, he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call it the Trinity. It baffles our finite minds, but the Bible teaches it in many different ways. But when Adam was created, he was alone. He had no counterpart. He had nobody on his own level with whom he could express himself and share his love. And from the very beginning, God knew that Adam needed somebody else with, to, to be with him in order to fully express the image of God. Adam didn't know that at first, and so God gave him some time to discover his need for that other. So for a while, God gave, gave him opportunity to observe and to classify all the animals and birds, giving them appropriate names. Now, undoubtedly, Adam found many similarities between himself and the other creatures. Chickens walked on two legs, bluebirds could sing, lions yawned, uh, uh, a a monkey could eat a a peel and eat a banana. But with each different animal, Adam must have felt how different he was from all of them, and therefore how alone. Now, God could have made a clone of Adam. He could have given him another man to be a fishing buddy or a tennis partner or to make jokes with, like uh, Laurel and Hardy and Amos and Andy or Rowan and Martin or the Smothers Brothers. But God didn't. God gave him something even better. God gave him someone who was like him but unlike him, somebody who was similar but different, someone who to complement him, not to duplicate him. God created a woman. Now let's look more carefully at how that woman is described. In verse 18 and again in verse 20, God says that Adam needed a suitable helper. The King James Version says a help meet for him, that is appropriate to him, corresponding to him, fit for his need. Now, to our English ears, helper isn't a very glamorous word, is it? We think of hamburger helper, an unappetizing vegetable substitute that fools us into thinking there's more of the real thing. Or we refer to the preschooler as mommy's little helper, not wanting to crush her feelings by telling her that, it takes us to twi- we could do things twice as fast with half the mess if she weren't trying to help us. Or we think of the tradesman's helper as someone a little bit clumsy and unskilled, deserving to be paid only half as much as the man who really knows how to do the job right. So when we read the description of Eve as Adam's helper, it may strike us as a put-down, but that's only because we speak English, not Hebrew. The word azer, translated helper, is used 15 out of 21 times in the Bible to describe God helping us. For example, Psalm 33.20 says, We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help, our azer, and our shield. Psalm 145.6 says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. To be called helper is not demeaning. It's a glowing compliment. It's a tribute to the woman's God-given capability, and it's a reminder of the man's inherent weakness. Macho man loves to swagger and boast and insist on his independence, but it's all a charade. God designed the woman to, be, to design the man to need the kind of help and support that only a woman, not another man, could give. The Hebrew calls the woman Azer Kenegdo, that is, a help corresponding. The word Kenegdo contains the idea of facing him on an equal level. This idea of equality is further 
suggested by the creation of the woman from the man's rib, from his side. Nobody has expressed it more beautifully than Thomas Aquinas, who said, God did not make the woman out of the man's head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. The emphasis of this whole passage concerning the first marriage is on partnership, correspondence, equality, companionship between the man and the woman. The act of coming together sexually as one flesh expresses the truth of the deeper oneness that draws them together. Man is, God has made the man and the woman as a mutually helping and serving interdependent team. Woman was taken out of the man in order to be put back together with him. The two shall become one. Now notice in this whole passage there's no reference to children. That will come later. But the first purpose for which God brought Adam and Eve together was this complementary companionship, this interdependent partnership, where the unity of their love and their communication would reflect the very image of God. It would be unity in diversity, reflecting the God who is three yet one. Within this partnership of marriage, as God created it, there's order, there's authority, there's headship. In the Hebrew culture, the right of naming was a clear expression of authority. Twice in Genesis, Adam is said to name Eve. In Genesis 2.23, he names her woman, Isha, which is related to the Hebrew word for man, Ish. And in Genesis 3, verse 20, we read again, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. But even more, the foundation for this idea of order in marriage is found in the fact that Eve was created to correspond to Adam, not the other way around. Adam was the given. He had been created by God and given work to do together. And to, to work to do. And then God brought Eve to Adam to share in that work and so they would work together. Now these verses are quoted twice in the New Testament in connection with questions of authority concerning men and women. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul's talking about the role of women in the church, and he insists that it contradicts God's order for women to be the authoritative teachers of doctrine or leaders of men in the church. And he grounds his arguments in the very order of creation. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And similarly, in the Corinthian congregation, questions arose about whether this order of authority between men and women should be preserved in the church. And Paul says yes, basing his arguments on the Genesis account. He says, For man did not come from the woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. The order God requires in the church simply parallels the order he's established in the home. And there's no clearer statement of God's order within the home than Ephesians 5, a passage which is often read in wedding ceremonies. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And then Paul goes on to say, though that this husband must not exercise his authority in tyranny or abuse or careless neglect, but rather to exercise it in loving, self-giving service. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The headship of the husband in the home isn't simply a cultural hangover from a primitive society. And it's not just a necessary evil because of the entrance of sin into the world. No, God ordained an order of authority 
in Adam and Eve's relationship while they were still enjoying perfection in the Garden of Eden, before either of them sinned. Now again, we can understand this better if we remember that marriage in some ways reflects the Trinity. Our God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit equal in power and glory and divinity. Are they? Yes. Yet, God the Son voluntarily submits to God the Father. All through his years of ministry on earth, Jesus spoke about doing the will of the Father and speaking the words that the Father had given him. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read that Jesus will continue to submit to the Father through all eternity. It says, then the end will come when he, that is Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When he has done this, then the Son himself, that is God the Son, Jesus Christ, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. This whole order established by God is summarized in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. It says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So just as in the Godhead there is equality in essential being, yet a difference in roles, so there is in marriage. The wife has the privilege of demonstrating the joyful submission of God the Son to God the Father, and the husband has the opportunity to model the loving leadership that God the Father gives to God the Son. Genesis 2 pulls back the curtain for us to see God's purpose in marriage, God's order in marriage, but it also lays the foundation for the exclusiveness of marriage. God's design is for two and only two to become one. The physical unity of sexual intercourse can only reach its highest joy and fulfillment within a relationship of lifelong trust and commitment. And when that relationship is shared by more than one, or when people try to make marriage the culmination of many previous experiments with short-term partners, something's lost. For marriage to be the relationship that God intends it to be, two separations are necessary. One is from the family. Look at chapter 2, verse 24 For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That word translated leave is a very strong one. It's often translated forsake or abandon. It often speaks of physical as well as geographical distance. Many marriages are crippled because one or both partners have never really left home emotionally. The ties of financial dependence or the inability to break from parental authority or the habit of running to the parent rather than to the spouse as the main counselor or confidant makes it impossible for the husband and wife to achieve a real unity with one another. Leaving must come before cleaving. The Hebrew word translated in the King James Version as cleave and here in the New International Version as be united is used for skin clinging to bones. It's used for a belt hugging tight around the waist, for a dry tongue sticking to the roof of the mouth. It means joined, fastened, stuck together, without room for anything else or anyone else to get in between. And for that to happen, there must be separation from family. I had an opportunity to apply this principle much earlier than I would have liked in relationship to Phyllis's parents. When we went to the airport to pick them up in my Datsun station wagon two and a half weeks before our marriage, They arrived with nine pieces of luggage, including two sets of golf clubs. I'm glad I had a roof rack on the Datsun. And when we asked them why on earth they brought so much stuff with them, they told us that 
they intended to get an apartment in the area and to stay for about six months in order to help us with our, quote, marital adjustments. (laughs) Can you believe it? So after much prayer and seeking counsel from some wise older believers, I went alone to have one of my first serious conversations with my soon-to-be in-laws. I told them gently but firmly that we would be saying goodbye when we left for our honeymoon and that when we returned to Southern California two weeks later, they would have left. I stated it as a fact, not as a point of discussion. Now that's the short version of a much longer story. In the years after that, we shared some wonderful times with her parents, even having them stay with us in our home for several weeks at a time. But so often we have been grateful that right at the beginning, we established the principle that there cannot be cleaving unless first there's leaving. And there must also be a separation from all other loves. God doesn't want that holy unity of husband and wife to be interrupted by memories of past lovers or comparisons with rival lovers or fantasies of future lovers or cyber images of imaginary lovers. Why? Because it destroys unity. It keeps the couple from becoming one in the deepest sense of the word. Verse 24 is quoted four times in the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that this deep unity between the husband and the wife is a picture of the unity between Christ and his bride, the church. And when we selfishly misuse sex, we deface this picture that God wants to use to remind the world of his pure, self-giving love for his people. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about the oneness that comes through sexual union as the reason why God prohibits all sexual misconduct. And these verses need to be heard again and again in our sex-saturated society. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The remaining two quotations of Genesis 2.24 found in the New Testament are by Jesus himself as he comments on the easy divorce laws in his day. The incidents are told in Mark 10 and in Matthew 19. Let me just read these verses to you from Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. God has designed sex to be enjoyed with one partner, within marriage, lifelong. Now, human selfishness often defaces that design. And yet God can forgive, God can restore and rebuild if we ask him to. Adam and Eve had the privilege of living, at least for a while, fulfilling the purpose of marriage, observing the order of marriage, and having no rivals to disrupt the the exclusiveness of their marriage. And therefore, for a while, they, more than anyone else since then, 
entered into the full joy of marriage and romance as God intended it to be. And the wonder of it all is expressed so beautifully in Genesis 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Imagine a relationship in which there was absolutely nothing to hide, nothing that couldn't be shared, no dark closet of the past that might be opened, in which the man and the woman could be totally unselfconscious, physically and emotionally reveling in their mutual love. Did you notice that the first recorded human words were a love poem? Our newer translations printed as two poetic couplets. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Adam's first two words in Hebrew were an exclamation, Zot hapa'am, now at last. Like all the great love stories in which the hero waits and waits and finally finds the woman of his dreams. One whole book of the Bible is devoted to the celebration of married love, the Song of Solomon. It's so exciting, so full of romance that a shy person might be embarrassed to read it aloud. But it shouts to us, just as Genesis 2 does, that God's design for marriage leads to joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. When Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, he was certainly including marriage. But there are a lot of marriages today where there isn't much joy. Our nation has one of the highest divorce rates in the world. Millions of couples choose to live together rather than run the risk of commitment to marriage. They've seen too many marriages that have pain. They say, I I don't want that. I'd rather just live together. Confusion about the purpose and meaning of sexuality is evident everywhere. The violent and degraded sexual imagery of the rock videos is one indication. The boredom and pain found in so much adolescent sexual experimentation is another. The increasing demand for public acceptance of homosexuality and same-sex marriage is another. Many people don't want God's purpose for marriage. They want sex, but they don't want to be mutually dependent on anyone. They want to live together, but they want the freedom to get out. Men don't want to admit their need for a help corresponding. Women don't want to be defined in terms of correspondence to anybody. And some men and women want a sexual partner like themselves, not the complementary opposite sex that God has designed for them. People also rebel against the order of marriage. Men refuse to lead. It takes too much energy. Women refuse to follow. It takes too much humility. Self-centeredness makes God's order look confusing, unattractive, demeaning. So both partners try to lead and the sparks fly. Or neither lead and the relationship goes nowhere. Or the woman leads, but in the long run, she and her husband and her children pay the price. People also rebel against the exclusiveness of marriage. They want a few trial runs first. They want to perfect their technique. They want to prove to their friends that they're grown up. Some want the security of a home life with some occasional spice from a secret lover or a little diversion during an out-of-town convention. Some people say five years is enough or 25 years is enough, so they ask for a trade-in. But all of them miss the joy. God designed us. He's our creator. He knows what works. He knows what doesn't work. Our focus on this Valentine's morning has been on the joy of marriage. And God's plan for most people is to marry, but that certainly doesn't mean that without marriage there's no joy. Jesus never married, but he said to his disciples in John 15, 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You don't have to be married to have complete joy. The apostle Paul was unmarried, yet he said to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. God has other ways to provide satisfaction and joy and friendship besides marriage. But whether single or married, There can be no lasting joy if we try to throw aside the foundations on which biblical marriage is based. 
In our home, there's a plaque in which is, is inscribed our wedding vows. We wrote those vows together three nights before our marriage, sitting at the t- kitchen table of the new apartment that would soon, we would soon occupy together. And when I read these lines, they remind me again of the foundations on which our home is built. Phyllis, my love, today you become my wife. God has chosen you as the one uniquely corresponding to me. You have become the joy of my life, my lover, my friend, my prayer partner, my confidant. You are God's gift to me, and I want to take good care of that gift. With all the creativity, energy, and discernment God supplies, I promise to love you as Christ loves the church, to nourish you as one who is also in the process of growth, and to cherish you as one who is precious to God and to me. This promise is for life. It doesn't depend on the circumstances we may encounter or the changes we may undergo. Only Christ can enable me to love you like this. So today I give myself afresh to him, and I give myself to you as your husband. I made that vow to Phyllis 35 years ago this May, and she made a corresponding vow to me. I'd like to urge each of you this morning to make a decision, a decision to reaffirm your commitment to the biblical foundations of marriage. I realize that not all of us are married, so our commitments will take different forms. But first, for those of you who are married, think about your spouse. Right now, in the quietness of your heart and in the presence of God, reaffirm your need for that person. Husbands, admit to God that you're not as independent as you sometimes try to be, that you need your wife's help. Wives, admit to the Lord that God has given you to your husband to be a help and a source of strength to him. Husbands, accept God's role for you as head in your home. Ask God for wisdom to become the leader and the protector your wife needs, whether or not she admits it. And wives, say no to the lies that our culture throws at us about where real freedom is found. Surrender your yourself to the Lord and trust him to give you real freedom within his design for you of supporting and responding to the initiative of your husband. Husbands and wives, recommit yourselves to permanence and exclusiveness within your relationship. Renounce the memories and the fantasies of every other love. If you are caught right now within the chains of an affair or starting to wander in your heart through pornography or any other way, seek help immediately. If you're just getting tired out, Ask the Lord for renewed energy to build your marriage. Ask Pastor Neil to recommend a good book about marriage. Put thoughts of divorce or separation out of your mind. Ask God to give you a new marriage, not with a new spouse, but a new marriage with your present partner. If you're single, whether as a young person or older, commit yourself to build on God's foundation. If God leads you into marriage, resolve to wait for someone who will share your commitment to God's purposes. Offer your body to God. Trust him to help you to channel your energy and keep yourself pure. And pray for your friends who are married, that God would keep them faithful to God's word. If you're struggling with attraction to others of the same sex, know that Jesus Christ can heal the broken places. He can remold you from within. He can give you the capacity to rejoice in your manhood or rejoice in your womanhood and to feel your, find your deepest intimacy within God's design of one man and one woman for a lifetime. Let's bow in silent prayer. And just as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, maybe it would help you to express your commitment to God in an active way. If this morning you'd like to tell the Lord that you're committing to build your life or your marriage on his foundations, would you raise your hand just for a moment? No one's going to be looking around. Just between you and God, if you want to make a fresh commitment to the Lord to build your life and your marriage on his foundations, let it just be a sign between you and God that you're serious about trusting and obeying him in this area of your life. If that's where you're at right now, just between you and God, would you raise your hand for a moment? 
Thank you. God loves you so much. How he longs for you to experience his joy. Lord, we thank you so much for the wonder and the gift of your love. We love because you first loved us. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen the hearts and strengthen the will and the resolve of each person who has made a commitment to you this morning. That from this day on, that this day would be a milestone in a fresh commitment to you as the foundation of life and the foundation of romance and dating in marriage. Lord, we pray that this Valentine's Day 2010 would be like a significant stake driven in the ground, like a memorial stone set up for a fresh beginning with you. Take our lives, Lord. We offer them as a gift to you. Take our tithes and offerings as symbols of our love for you. Use them to spread the good news of your love throughout this community and around the world. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.